These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Imagine holding the brain of the 20th century's greatest scientific genius in your hands. It was the brain of a man who thought in ways no other human being had thought before. A man who had changed the way the world thought about space and time. You have the brain of Albert Einstein. You wonder what made this brain so different from everybody else's. Why did this man see things in the universe that no one else had seen before? Now what do you do? Do you put the brain back into the skull? Or do you keep it for further study to see if there's something there that made it so different? On this episode, I have the story of a man who did just that, took Einstein's brain. Some say stole his brain and spent the rest of his life trying to find out what made it so special. This is the story of Dr. Thomas Harvey, the man who took Einstein's brain on the 205th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic that I would like to know more about, and then write it into a short, engaging story. Or at least, that's the idea. My stories are usually a short overview of the subject, and there's always a lot more information out there. Now, this story I first came across on a TV show called Dark Matters, Twisted But True on the Science Channel. Dark Matters was on between 2011 and 12, and it attempted to make everything seem dark and macabre, scary and mysterious. And when I watched it, I knew there had to be more to the story, and I always planned on doing my own research. And of course, by my own research, I mean taking other people's research and putting it into my own words. Now, a lot of today's story came from a book called Possessing Genius by Caroline Abrams. The book is 416 pages, so so my 20-minute tale isn't the complete story. But I think I got the gist of it. I used Abrams' book a lot more than I would have liked because most of the information I found on the internet seems to be, well, one, pointing a laughing finger at Dr. Harvey, but also recycling the same information that all the other sites had and most of it seemed questionable. So I went with somebody who actually seemed to have researched the subject. So let's get into it. Here's the story of the man who saved Einstein's brain. Dr. Albert Einstein came to America with his wife to escape Nazi persecution. His mathematical wizardry led to the atomic age. He received highest honors, but lived quietly at Princeton, New Jersey. There, death came to Albert Einstein. He was 76. On April 17, 1955, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century lay in a hospital bed at Princeton Hospital. He refused surgery that might have saved his life, saying, I want to go when I want. It's tasteless to prolong life artificially. I have done my share. It is time to go. I will do it elegantly. The following day, he mumbled a few sentences in German to a nurse who didn't speak German, and then, two breaths later, passed away at the age of 76. No one will ever know the meaning of his last words. 
His name was Albert Einstein, a German-born theoretical physicist. Now, Einstein was a gentle, humble man, and he feared that after his death, because of his fame, he would be worshipped. That was something he truly didn't want. He didn't want statues or shrines built in his honor, didn't want schools or hospitals named after him. His home was not to become a museum. He was so serious about this that he wanted to be cremated and his ashes scattered in secret, so no one would ever make pilgrimages to his final resting place. Soon after his autopsy, an article appeared in the April 20, 1955 New York Times. The headline read, Key Clues Sought in Einstein's Brain. The article was about how the brain of Einstein had been removed for further study, and researchers were hoping to find the secret of his genius. Now, his family was well aware of his wishes, so when his son, Hans Albert, read the article, he wasn't too happy. Neither was Otto Nathan, a close friend of Albert's, for many years and now was in charge of looking after his estate and his legacy. Both Hans and Otto wanted to talk to one man, the man who had made the decision to keep the brain, and that was Dr. Thomas Harvey. Dr. Harvey was a pathologist at Princeton Hospital. When he woke up the morning of April 18, 1955, he had no idea that he would be given a task that would change the rest of his life. Thomas Harvey had studied at Yale University as an undergraduate and later as a medical student under Dr. Harry Zimmerman. In his third year of medical school, he contracted tuberculosis and was bedridden for the next year in a sanitarium. This was the biggest disappointment of his life. But it was at the sanitarium where he met a young nursing student named Eloise Shockey. In the spring of 1941, the two married. That same year, he finally graduated. But his residency was cut short when the United States entered World War II. After the war, he wanted to continue his training in medicine. But by 1964, he and his wife had three sons, so he became a pathologist at the University of Philadelphia rather than furthering on his medical training. It was there that he began to take courses in how to prepare brains for microscope slides. In 1951, he became the head of the new pathology department at Princeton Hospital. One of the most famous residents at Princeton was Albert Einstein, the man who had changed the concept of space and time. Einstein was getting up in years and was now living a quiet, gentle life. He was known to sit on the front porch in large fuzzy slippers and smoke his pipe. He would help the children in the neighborhood with their homework and serenade them with his violin. He loved the fact that he could walk down the street in an old sweater and tennis shoes and eating ice cream without being gawked at. Yet he never stopped thinking about great mathematical equations. On April 15, 1955, he was brought to Princeton Hospital because he was experiencing internal bleeding. He refused an operation that might have saved his life. Even his son Hans Albert couldn't talk Einstein into it. At 11.15 a.m. on the 18th, he took his last two breaths and passed away. Dr. Thomas Hardy received a call at home saying that he would be performing the autopsy on the 20th century's most famous intellectual hero. I felt lucky, he would say. I had the great fortune of being the one at the right place at the right time. It was the biggest moment in my life. Yet he wasn't alone in the autopsy room. Among those who were present was Otto Nathan, the 62-year-old executor of Einstein's estate. Nathan watched Harvey remove the brain and didn't say a word. 
It could be he just thought that was a normal part of an autopsy. And removing the brain was common during an autopsy. It was weighed and examined, but usually it was returned to the skull. In this case, however, it was never returned. To me, it was obvious that the brain of this man should be studied, Harvey said. Here was the brain of a genius, I thought. I better do a good job. Yet, as he held it in his hands, he thought it didn't seem special. It looked just like any other brain, he later said. Someone at the hospital most likely leaked the information about the brain to a New York Times reporter. When the news reached Einstein's family, they weren't happy, especially Hans Albert. Now to some, what Harvey did might seem ghoulish, but to a doctor, a human corpse was looked at as a chance to learn. It was the brain of a genius, Harvey once said. I would have felt ashamed if I'd left it. Later, on the phone with Hans Albert, Tom Harvey made the sales pitch of his life, explaining that there will never be an opportunity like this again to study the brain of a true genius. He said that he would take care of the brain and promised that he would only use it for scientific study and that reports about it would only appear in scientific journals. As a man who learned about science from his father, Hans agreed. While Hans gave his permission, Otto Nathan wasn't happy, but there was little he could do about it. So instead, he became the watchdog of the situation. Now, Dr. Harvey knew his limitations when it came to studying the brain. He was not a neuronanimist, but he intended to find other distinguished neuronanimists to review the brain. To start with, he called upon his old teacher, Dr. Harry Zimmerman, a neuropathologist who was a pioneer in the study of disease of the nervous system. Zimmerman worked for the Montefiore Medical Center, a premier academic medical center, and the primary teaching hospital of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. It was Zimmerman who convinced his friend Albert Einstein to let the hospital be named after him. Harvey told Zimmerman he would send the brain right away. But the brain never arrived, and when Zimmerman called to ask, he was told that Princeton was against sending it. And when word got out, this caused quite a stir in the newspapers. It was just the type of publicity that the Einstein estate had been hoping to avoid. Otto Nathan sent a letter to Harvey expressing his displeasure. Harvey began asking those qualified to begin looking into his work. He told reporters, The study will be made by a team of outstanding medical men. But many in the scientific and non-scientific community didn't agree with his handling of the brain, and, and he found it difficult to get the help he needed. Otto Nathan would periodically send Harvey letters asking him about the brain and when they might see some papers published in medical journals. Harvey would respond by saying that progress is going fine and there should be results soon. He did occasionally send slides of the brain to experts, but usually the experts didn't give it much thought, thinking there was very little they could learn. Whenever he was asked about the brain, he would say he was about a year away from publishing results. At one point, he was summoned to Washington, D.C. to talk to Lieutenant Colonel Webb Haymaker, the head of neuropathology at the U.S. Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. Webb and his men were not happy when Harvey arrived without the brain. They were even more upset when Harvey told them that he had no intention of turning the brain over to the military or to the U.S. government. By this time, brains were all that was on Harvey's mind. He was learning how to preserve them, how to study them and such. His main goal was to simply make a notable contribution to a worthwhile scientific endeavor. 
he would have been happy just to be the person who had supervised the study of the brain. Nights and weekends were spent in the back lab at Princeton University studying brains. He began weighing it, measuring it, photographing it, drawing it. But before he began cutting it up, he had a grand idea. He brought in an artist, Anne Bonine Bauer, to draw a still life of the brain. Once the art was done, the next task was sectioning the brain for further study. Princeton, however, didn't have the resources to do the work. He loaded the brain, which was stored in two large glass containers, the kind that are used for cookies in the kitchen, into the back of his Ford. He and the brain traveled to the University of Pennsylvania. It was there that the brain was cut into 240 blocks and slides were prepared. By January 1958, three years after Einstein's death, Thomas Harvey still hadn't learned much about the brain, and Otto Nathan was getting irritated. Otto would write him letters every now and again and politely ask him when they might see some results in scientific journals. They would meet, and Harvey would assure him that, well, things are happening. His obsession with the brain soon took a toll on his marriage, and it might be that he was having an affair with a young lady, a lab technician at the hospital, or at least that's what his wife thought. She started making trouble at the hospital. She accused the administrators of running a brothel. Now, they had worked to make the institution well-respected within the community, and this was just the kind of thing that would ruin that reputation. To avoid embarrassment, the hospital used the brain as an excuse to get rid of him. Now, by this time, it had been five years since Einstein's passing, and they had still heard nothing. Not one single report was published. Some say the hospital asked him to turn over the brain, but he refused. But in the end, he either resigned or was fired, depending on whose accounts of the events you listen to. Harvey left Princeton and took the brain with him. He left his home to look for work, leaving the brain in the basement of his now ex-wife's house. She hated having that thing around. She told her colleagues, I wish you'd get that damn thing out of here. She sent him a message saying she was going to dispose of the brain in the garbage unless he took it away. He returned and retrieved the brain. For a while, he tried to run a nursing home just outside Princeton, but soon gave that up, and he opened a private medical lab in Princeton. After that, he took a job with a New Jersey psychiatric lab. There he worked testing drugs in the brains of rodents. While there, he met a pretty lab assistant named Lisa Scott Brannigan. She was bright, and the two married in 1963. They would go on to have two daughters, Frances and Elizabeth. Just after their second daughter's birth, he was hired by the Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital, New Jersey's largest public asylum. The hospital had over 1,000 residents, from the mentally handicapped to the criminally insane. While doing his normal job, he also attempted to keep studying brains. I tried to study brains whenever I got them, he said, to give me a sense of what was normal. Through all these jobs, it had now been 11 years since Einstein died and Otto Nathan was still sending him letters, always politely, asking him what was going on. When would they see some results, he asked. When would they be published? Occasionally they would meet and, just like many times before, Harvey would assure him that things were progressing. In 1972, the Harvey family, along with the brain, packed up and moved to the Midwest. His daughter Elizabeth later remembered packing boxes containing jars of brain. Daddy didn't take care of a lot of things, she said, but he sure took care of that brain. 
1974, Harvey's wife left him and took the children to Florida. His second marriage was over. It was just Thomas Harvey and Einstein's brain. Harvey found a job as a medical supervisor in a biological testing lab in Wichita, Kansas. He kept the brain in a cedar box stashed under a beer cooler. After that, he was in Weston, Missouri, where he practiced medicine while dealing with the brain in his spare time. In 1988, after failing a three-day competency exam, he lost his medical license. He found work in an assembly line in a plastic extrusion factory in Lawrence, Kansas. A second-floor apartment next to the gas station was his home. But on the bright side, beat poet William Burroughs was his neighbor and the two became friends, routinely having drinks on Burroughs' front porch. Burroughs would joke with visitors that he could have a piece of Einstein's brain anytime he wanted. But back in 1978, when he was still living in Wichita, Kansas, another person began wondering about the brain. An editor for the New Jersey Monthly had read a biography on Einstein and began wondering about the brain. He even called Otto Nathan for information but got no results. He decided to put a 27-year-old writer who had been with the magazine for about three years on the case. His name was Stephen Levy and he was told to find out whatever became of the brain. Now, as Levy said in his TED Talk, there was no Facebook or Google at the time, so this was no easy task. He called Princeton Hospital, and he learned that there were no records of whatever happened to the brain. It seemed that when Harvey left, he took all the records with him. Levy spent hour upon hour at the public library and learned very little, except one thing. In 23 years since Einstein's death, nothing on his brain has ever been published. Eventually, he called the American Medical Association, and after doing some begging, as it was against their policy to give out such information, they said that there was a Thomas S. Harvey living in Wichita, Kansas, and they gave him the address. Finding the number, he nervously called. He asked the man who answered the phone if he was the Dr. Harvey who worked at Princeton in the 1950s. After a long pause, as if the man was considering whether to tell him the truth or not, he said yes, he was. Levy told him who he was and that he wanted to talk about the brain. Harvey said that he had made an agreement never to talk to the press about the brain. He was sorry, but no. But the young reporter was insistent, and finally Harvey agreed on the condition that he was not bound to tell him any scientific information that had yet to be published. When they met, Levy asked Harvey what had taken so long. We had no urgency to publish, Harvey said, and the actual examination didn't take this long, of course, though there is some work still to be done. You see, my career since I did the autopsy has been sort of interrupted. I left Princeton Hospital in 1960 and moved to Freehold. For the past few years, I've been here in Wichita. I don't work on it as much as I used to, but we're getting closer to publication. I'd say we're perhaps a year away. Eventually, Harvey showed Levy what he was there to see. There were a couple of boxes behind a beer cooler. He removed the first box, then reached into the second one, a box with a Costa Cider logo on it. He dug through crumpled newspapers, and finally he pulled out a mason jar. Inside the jar were bits of Einstein's brain. Stephen Levy published a story in the August 1978 issue of New Jersey Monthly. It created new interest in Einstein's brain. 
It was all over the news that the brain had turned up in a laboratory in Kansas. Even Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show made jokes about it. Now, here's an unusual item. I hope it doesn't turn you off. It's just kind of a scientific item. But portions of Albert Einstein's brain have turned up in a laboratory in Wichita, Kansas. Remains were found in a jar there. <laughs> People get turned on by brain jokes. The Weekly World News had the headline, Einstein's brain comes to life and goes on rampage. But more important, scientists started asking about the brain. At least two important studies were done. One by a Dr. Marion Diamond, who published the 1985 paper on the brain of a scientist, Albert Einstein. It took over 30 years after the genius died, but finally there was a published study. This was an important paper that not only claimed that there was a difference in Einstein's brain than that of the average person, but also what got Otto Nathan off Harvey's back. Dr. Otto Nathan would die two years later. Another study was one by Sandra Wiltonson. She published a paper called The Exceptional Brain of Albert Einstein in 1999. In it, she stated that the brain had a 50% wider inferior parietal region as well as a shorter-than-normal lateral sulcus. Now, personally, I don't know what any of that means, but again, it showed that Einstein's brain was a bit different. Dr. Thomas Schultz Harvey died on April 5, 2007 at the age of 94. In 2010, Harvey's heirs transferred all his holdings constituting the remains of Albert Einstein's brain to the National Museum of Health and Medicine, including 14 photographs of the whole brain, which is now in fragments, never before revealed to the public. Dr. Harvey took special care of the brain. He took more than 100 photos from different angles, preserved it by injecting its arteries with formaldehyde, and then dissected it carefully into 240 pieces. This brain was one of the greatest in the world, so it deserved a special treatment. Special treatment indeed. Dr. Harvey, a man as curious as the brain under his care, then placed the parts in two large mason jars filled with formaldehyde and took them on a cross-country road trip. A little bit before I go. There's a bit of this story I didn't talk about. You see, Einstein didn't want his bones to be worshipped. That's why he had his ashes scattered in secret. And while Dr. Harvey took the brains for study and did a good job of not sensationalizing it, keeping in line with what he promised the Einstein estate, the brain wasn't the only thing taken the day of the autopsy. Ophthalmologist and good friend of Einstein, Harry Abrams, took the genius's eyeballs. It's said that he kept them in a safety deposit box and would look at them from time to time. Now, some reports say it was Dr. Harvey that took the eyes and gave them to Abrams, but I've read in other places that Abrams took the eyes by himself. The thing is, the eyeballs were not taken to study or to learn, but as a keepsake, and that was something against Einstein's wishes. But what can you do? Now, if you're interested in how Stephen Levy tracked down Dr. Harvey and got a chance to see Einstein's brain, I'll have a link to both a video of his TED Talk and an article he wrote about his adventure in today's show notes. But now, how about the ending credits? 
You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link at the Coffee with Jeff website. If you can help finance the show to keep it going, I'd love you for it. You can do so by contributing to my Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com for more information. And tell your friends about the show. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. I encourage you to supply me with any story ideas you might have. And thanks to Nancy Fry for a couple of good story ideas this week. I want to thank my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks with something thrilling. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Beantown. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Thank you.